0: Welcome to the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast. I'm your host, Nadia De La Cruz, founder of the Wayne Dyer Wisdom Community on Facebook and angeltarot.org. My guest today is an accomplished musician that is no stranger to adversity. At the age of two, he survived a gasoline explosion that was likely to be fatal. It left him with third-degree burns over 80% of his body and forever altered the course of his life. When he was 12, he began playing the drums, despite the loss of both his hands. His determination and skill led him to become a highly respected drummer in his hometown of New Orleans. He's also an incredibly inspiring public speaker. Dr. Wayne Dyer brought him on stage for a speaking tour in 2008 and wrote the foreword to his book, The Gift of Fire, How I Made Adversity Work for Me. Dan Caro, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, I
1: appreciate it. Thank you for having me on.
0: So I first saw you years ago on the Wayne Dyer PBS special called Excuses Be Gone, and you were unforgettable. So um, you're definitely one of the people I thought of after I started this podcast of, wow, what's Dan Caro doing? So I <laughs> I actually looked you up on Facebook, and I found some videos that you had put out Um One was a drumspiration back in May. And in this video, you're saying, you know, especially at this time, whatever your gifts are, share them with the world. Like, don't be selfish. Like, any any positivity that we can put out there in any small way, do it. And so after hearing that, I was like, okay, that's it. I worked up the courage and I messaged you. And I was like, hey, you want to come on my podcast? So
1: Um, (laughs) I'm so
0: happy that I did because here we are.
1: Yeah, I am too. Appreciate you doing that. Thank you for real.
0: So you and I are from the same era. I think I'm two years older than you. So um, it was interesting reading your book that even though you were in New Orleans and I was in Seattle, that we grew up at the same time in the world. And I, I felt this kind of kinship to your story of this reference of just what it was like at that time. And then I noticed a lot of your retro T-shirts um, on your yeah. videos, which I love. And one is Commodore 64. Yeah. So it's Mm -hmm. like such an obscure reference for most people. But for me, like we had a Commodore 64 and a VIC-20. Those were our first computers because my dad was a computer programmer, you know, back from the beginning when the day if from the time that like computers took up a whole room, you know, and you had to put those little cards in. So, yeah,
1: yeah. that's interesting. We didn't have a Commodore 64 in my household, but my best friend did. Um, So we had a... uh, my dad was an insurance guy and one of his clients built computers and he brought home this laptop with 256 kilobytes of uh, of storage space. was huge uh, at the time. Yeah, it was massive and and but it did nothing. It was just a uh, this box that did really nothing. You had to program any command, you had to write code basically to do yeah. anything. And we didn't know that they didn't teach adequate um, computer skills in, in my grade school, so it just sort of sat there. But w- every time I'd go to my buddy's house, he had a Commodore sixty four, so we would just play on that all the time because they had games for that system. Yeah. So it
0: was yeah, fun. I think they were. I think they were floppy disks, or we even had a tape player. I think that somehow was how you put the games in. But um, yeah, blast from the past. Um, yeah. uh, <laughs> I just wanted to shout that out. Um, Retro t-shirts, very cool. Very much. So in the introduction, I mentioned obviously the the gasoline explosion, the fire that you survived when you were two years old. Can you tell us a little bit about that accident?
1: Sure. So it was on St. Patrick's Day, 1982. Um, I was two years old, and uh, my mother and I were home. My father, and at the time, I only had two brothers. I have a third, a younger brother now. But um, they were at school, and my dad was at work. So my mother and I were at home. And um, March in Louisiana, your grass can get up to your knees. It's so hot already in March. I mean, you've got to cut your grass year-round. So my mother, doing the best she could, took me outside with her and set me up in the backyard while she could try to get some of that those household chores done. Uh, she was, I guess I, I heard that it was her first time ever attempting to do that. So it was sort of a new experience for her, which was interesting. But um, while she was trying to get the lawnmower going, I, I ran off. And like most two-year-olds would do is escape their supervision and ended up in the garage where I knew uh, they stored my, my favorite toy, which was a wagon. And on the way in to get that wagon, I knocked over a can of gasoline, which was stored on the floor um, next to all the paints and oils and all the stuff that you should keep in a garage closed with no ventilation yeah. with the water here. <laughs> like most people like
0: do. Like most people shouldn't. do. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and
1: shouldn't. It's just a, The reason why I bring that up is this is a very common injury for children, and it's easily preventable. You know, and there's no blame. It's just an oversight that people don't. We we just do it. It's what we do. We were brought up in that style. So anyway, um, yeah, that's kind of what happened. The water heater pilot ignited the vapor as the gas fumes filled the air. And little two-year-old Danny was caught in that fireball. And then shortly afterward, I guess my mother instinctively had super Spider-Man hearing. And she could hear my scream over the volume of the lawnmower. Comes rushing in, grabs me, sees me, pulls me out into the the lawn and lays me in the grass. And just starts wailing hysterically. Can't do anything. I mean, she doesn't know what to do. So my neighbor down the street, fortunately, was outside and heard the screams. And by that time, um, the smoke from the garage had started to... To fill some of the neighborhood air, and she called nine one one, and fortunately, we were only one block from a volunteer fire station, and they were there instantly. And um, you know, within minutes, I was en route to Charity Hospital, which no longer exists in New Orleans, but that was the only hospital at the time with a burn ward around, around my area. And um, yeah, it was a pretty, uh, a pretty serious, pretty serious trauma. Um, Third and fourth degree burns, Uh, over 80% of my body was my diagnosis. Prognosis was not good. Um, Doctors were doubtful that I would make it through the night. Um, You know, and then uh, the critical time for a burn uh, as severe as mine is the first 72 hours. Um, Basically, most people don't survive with a burn as severe For 72 hours Um, and you might have some quality of life afterward you know as you you mentioned in the in the intro um, I lost my hands and fingers and you know scarring over 80% of my body lost toes on my left foot and have severe orthopedic issues just because you know when you're two years old and your body has to stretch out to grow and your skin doesn't allow for 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 expansion because it's it's not as elastic as normal skin. It starts to create orthopedic issues that are not visible to the naked eye. So there are other issues um, that aren't very visible, but I'm pretty severely scarred at first glance. I mean, it's undeniable that I'm a burn survivor. So, um, but, but you know, going back to just finalizing your, your question, um, you know, that first 72 hours was a very, very critical time. My parents were there at the hospital the whole time. Doctors were doing everything they possibly could to um, stabilize me. And then a miracle occurred shortly uh, shortly after. And uh, a Shriner, if you're familiar with the organization, mm-hmm. the Shriners, a Shriner popped his head in the door to meet with my parents and told them about a hospital At the time, the only hospital, well, they have 22 hospitals, but at the time, the one that was ready to accept me as a patient was in Boston, and they were ready to airlift me to Boston that night and take care of all the expenses for the remainder of my treatment, and they provided this wonderful gift to my family. And as soon as my parents consented and got the doctors in, in New Orleans to release me, that's when... Things changed for for, for us. Um, everything sort of started to an upslope at that point, and um, my parents started to have hope again that you know life was possible at least for me. You know,
0: I can't imagine what that was like not only for you but for your family. I think your mother especially. Um, I have two little kids, and. I understand that powerful drive to protect your children and that you know like my children mean more to me than my own life hands down right and for you to witness that and possibly even feel responsible even though it was totally an accident mm-hmm. to pick up your child and not know if they're going to survive in that condition and really it's unbelievable that you did survive and I i firmly believe that it's no coincidence that you're here. I think it's the, the power of your spirit that kept you in that body and allowed it to heal. And you have something inside of you that made you still wanna be here. And I'm so grateful that you made that choice because you touch people's hearts every single day with your music and with your story and with your book. And so I just want to thank you for being a survivor. Now you, that must have been a, a that was a long journey to take um, to go to Boston, especially in your condition, but that was your best chance of survival, right?
1: That's correct. Yeah, they had a, um, a military uh, med- uh, med- medevac um, stationed uh, for me to fly up. So the, 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 the emergency team, that was looking after me, and New Orleans flew up with me, you know, and it was constant care the whole time. And then the the Shriners team met them at the hospital, and it was just a, flu- a fluid exchange, you know, from one hospital to the next, you know, with as little as little uh, problems as possible. Um, yeah, because traveling, you know, the altitude and the and the environmental change. Um, and then your susceptibility to the elements, you know, like when you're burned, um, you know, as badly as, as a third degree or a fourth degree burn, your skin literally is gone. Like it burns away. There's no more. Right. So, um, you're vulnerable to all sorts of invasive bacterias and virulence and, um, you know, ultimately they did get me i did die three times you know so um technically so you, you actually
0: me. didn't you run into the one of the doctors a surgeon i believe that was taking care of you when you were grown mm-hmm. and he said oh yeah you actually died three times on the table
1: yeah i was given a talk at the shriners hospital in boston and the doctor that received me he was the aunt you know the uh had uh, at the time, um, he said, "You know, we we don't. I'm sure nobody ever told you this, but uh, <laughs> you died." And I was actually giving a talk at the time. He walked on stage <laughs> and told me, "He goes, you don't remember me at all, but I remember you. It was a tough night." He goes, "We had to bring you back three separate times," and um, he says, "I know you've never been told, but I think you need to know." And I said, "Well." Apparently I died three times and I finished my talk just totally in all oh my gosh that that happened and and but I mean it makes sense and it, it does make sense this this burn was so severe that not not that it's the worst of all I mean I, there are definitely folks who are burned worse than I but not much not much worse and um you know' you, you're, the infection is what did it you know I mean blood infection and also breathing in um Thousands of degrees of heat, you know, just really destroys your insides, your lungs, especially, obviously. So um, I'm sure there was all sorts of respiratory issues. I still have respiratory issues to this day because of that. So it was a tough situation, no doubt, you know. But I was sedated. I was two years old. I have no memory of that initial period. Yeah.
0: Sometimes I think when there's when there's an accident or when there's a trauma, at least initially, it's harder for the family than for the person because they're often not even conscious of of what's going on. But yeah. certainly you you had your share of, of climbing back from that. So it's just amazing your story of survival. And, you know, Wayne Dyer used to talk about uh, life purpose and that he felt like he came onto this planet wanted, wanting to teach self-reliance. That, that was something that was really in his heart. When you look back on your life, like... Do you feel like you've had a mission? Was there something that kept you around that made you want to be here?
1: I'm not exactly sure. You know, looking back, maybe I can I can add some sort of to, to to my life, you know. I'm not sure if it's like authentic or if it's just something that I want to be real, you know, that maybe there was a a lesson to be learned along the way, or maybe there is something to teach. But definitely, I had no knowledge or awareness of that as I was, you know, growing up and just dealing with the day-to-day struggles. Yeah. Um, I didn't even acknowledge that this was anything, whether a negative or a positive. It just was. I mean, I, in, a, in a because I was two years old, it was almost as if I was born like this. So I have no awareness of life other than this. So I don't have anything to compare it to. You see yeah. what I'm saying? That's is, really
0: interesting because if it had happened as an adult, it would it would have a very different impact on your life than I as agree. a 2-year-old, a toddler. Yeah. So now you spent 4 years in in the Shriners Hospital and had over 80 surgeries, is that right?
1: Yeah, initially it was a 4-month stay, but um, you know, cumulatively over you know, from, from the burn until probably about 18 or 19 years old. It's about a four to five year period, you know, like, a, or, you know, off and on throughout the whole childhood. 80 surgeries, for sure, 80 surgeries, probably more. Um, definitely been under anesthesia more than that. Um, you know, thousands upon thousands of x-rays and things, you know, it's like I'm, I'm radioactive. I can guarantee <laughs> Yeah, I don't, you know, I, one day I plan on turning into the Hulk because of all the <laughs> x rays I've taken over the years, but that hasn't happened yet. And um, it waiting is what for it your is. Superpowers, but, yeah. yeah, I'm just kind of waiting for that. You know, maybe that's the gift. I haven't, you know, I don't oh. know that I'm the Hulk yet. You know, we'll see. <laughs> but,
0: yeah. So, What was childhood like for you then? Did you ever get used to, first of all, just like going in and out of the hospital for all of that? Like, was that just normal for you?
1: The only thing that, yeah, that was a piece of cake. I mean, I I actually excelled, which is a weird thing to say, in the hospital. Um, You're a
0: great patient.
1: I was a great patient. We were a very stubborn patient. And my mother was always with me for every procedure from start to finish. And, um, we were very stubborn patients and and family, uh, but we got the job done and and you know, um for as serious a burn as i've had i it and and I don't know that many burn survivors, but I know enough to say, I've come a long way above and beyond what is considered to be normal, like it, it, the normal recovery within the Within the um, the burn survivor group who were who is relatable to my injury um, my physical limitations are practically zero um, uh, so sorry my dog is in the back <laughs> this is
0: real life folks real life it, it
1: is what it is and she's kind of hacking up a little bit but she's 18 years old she's she's Aww. she's come a long way but uh, but anyway um, but uh, we were great patients, and we did everything we possibly could to learn treatment, to learn um, all the exercises, to learn limitation, to, we, we would have, like, ex- intense meetings with the doctors and nursing staff, and and, and we did everything we could as a, as a unit together to get the absolute best quality of care, and the was already that, but we took it steps above and then also another reason why i would excel in the hospital was i would spend weeks in the hospital every time i would go because it was so far away Mm -hmm. and when i would leave i would meet with uh, my teachers and get like basically a semester's worth of work you know uh to take up with me and i didn't have anything else to do yeah. So my mom and I and then eventually there was a teacher on staff would just go through the coursework and then by the time I'd come home I would be completely done basically with the entire semester in a matter of 2 to 3 weeks. Yeah. And I would just sit around <laughs> not doing anything. So and, and and it was just a great experience and um and I actually enjoyed being in the hospital as weird as that sounds. The Schrader's house, and I, I look, I, I'm sorry if it sounds like it's a promotion for them, because I'm I'm not trying oh, to solicit, but it's a it's a designed for 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 children, right? It's it's a hospital network that's designed for a whole patient, whole family care. It's not just a you're a number, and we tr- we treat your your situation, and then you move on. You know so I actually enjoyed the environment of that particular hospital and I got to know some of the families and some of the patients and I still remain really friends with a lot of them today so it's yeah. a really good network and I, it it feels like a family so that was sort of an extension of my own personal family so I did thrive in the hospital
0: I mean what the shriners are doing is like um it's like a gift from god when people need it the most you know it's Mm -hmm. it's amazing and and the fact that they care about the environment of the hospital and not just the quality of the care because they know they're working with kids uh you know that that says a lot about how much they care and then you eventually became an ambassador for the shriners is that right
1: yeah and remain still today Good. So it kind of was a pitch. I'm sorry. I have to. It's sort of my. No, please. It's my mission to bring it. the Shriners into public awareness, but they definitely do deserve it. And um, and I, you know, I'm I'm grateful to serve as a a, a former patient ambassador. You know, to spread spread their mission also, um, because there's a lot of folks who really need care, and they're getting. They might be able to have access to it on a limited basis. Some not at all. The Shriners are there. So that's a great resource to investigate if you have someone who meets one of the four medical disciplines, um, orthopedics, spinal cord injury, burns, and cleft lip and palate. If you fall into one of those four categories, um, there's a Shriners Hospital in our network that can uh can take a take a look at your case and and do that so yeah it's a great it's really
0: good good for people to know that thank you for thank you for sharing that so what was school like for you in your book you you cover a lot about um you know some of the challenges of even like going into kindergarten and like dealing with kids who notoriously can be cruel or just kind of confused when somebody's different or looks different and obviously you did um so what you know (laughs) <laughs> I don't want to dredge up any difficult memories, but like, you know, even not just at school, but what was childhood like for you? Because your family seems like a very loving, supportive group. And um, you have, is it three three brothers, one yep. younger than you? Yeah.
1: Correct.
0: So what was childhood like for you after you'd come out of so many of these surgeries? And well, I guess you were still going in, but. Yeah.
1: So, um, yeah, the family dynamic was very good. I mean, we were very tight family growing up, my older brothers were, um, they were typical older brothers. I mean, they they, they respected that I had, uh, they had to be a little bit more delicate with me. But once we found out what my limitations were, which is basically none, then they just <laughs> became regular older brothers and, you know, nothing was off limits Yeah, inside of our family. Now, if anybody else came in and started messing with me, then... They became protective older brothers, you know. But they never let up on me. I mean, we were, you know, and I never um, gave them a reason to to treat me with kid gloves, if you will. Um, so I was very competitive because of them. Very, very um, aggressive. Uh, we all played sports, and I, I, I followed in their footsteps. And I wanted to be as uh, accomplished and whatever that they did, and they inspired me. And um, whatever it takes to get to the level of competitiveness with them is what I you know, what I was going to do. And um, as far as school, and my parents were the same way. Um, you know, obviously, they were parents. And I personally don't have children, so I don't really have that instinctual drive to protect your children. But even though they protected me, they saw how independent I was, and they knew that I I, I hated their protection. I hated <laughs> to be, you know.
0: Typical kid.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I mean, um, I also kind of early on realized that the world isn't going to treat me nice uh, just because. I mean, I'm going to deal with nice people, but I'm going to deal with monsters too, mm-hmm. you know. And it's funny because the monsters were the ones who were calling me monster you know and it's weird how that that iron that, that irony is but um i had to deal with real life scenarios so i didn't want anybody sheltering me i didn't want my family protecting me i wanted to take those hits and and deal with it on my own terms and i think i adjusted fairly well um, you you talked about the kindergarten situation briefly. You didn't go into detail, which is fine. But that was really the only incident at school. That was a tough situation. And that was like the first few days, you know, And then immediately I took charge and commanded the situation, go my way, and beat up a kid and became his friend. And um, I dominated. I overpowered the the weakest link, overpowered the strongest link. In the hierarchy of, of, of the kids. And it was just a shock. It was so overwhelmingly shocking to, to that, that group that they had no choice but to accept it because, you know, that was the only way to make sense of it was to just, just include me and and become my friend. And, And it worked. And it was empowering from day one, not just to dominate a person. I don't want to dominate anybody. I have no violence in me. I don't want to beat anybody up. It was an act of desperation is what it was. But I
0: think you just didn't want to be pushed around. And and you were keen enough to observe the dynamic on the playground and was like, okay, this guy is who everybody looks up to in mm-hmm. the in crowd, right? Everybody mm-hmm. follows what he does. Yeah. So if, if I can do, you know, if I can get in with this guy or make a statement that everybody's going to notice, then people might look at me differently, even Let's, if you didn't plan it out, right? Well,
1: it's exactly <laughs> the same scenario as like when someone, yeah, you've heard when, when you go to jail, you pick up the biggest guy and you knock him. And if you show your, your, you know, your resilience right away, then they won't yeah. mess with you. Well, I yeah. kind of took that approach at five years old. I was, Aww. I was doing that <laughs> on the playground, which was crazy. But look, it is what it is. I don't do that now, but um, it, it is what it is. I needed to do that and it worked and um, it, 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 what it did for me was just build a confidence, and from that day forward, within my own school, I didn't really have to face ridicule. I, I, I didn't. I wasn't an outcast anymore, and uh, it was. I was included right away. Now, walking outside of the school was a different story into regular life. But you know, I mean, my friends were in my class. You know, so I kind of didn't care about all of that other. Noise outside, you know, my family, my extended family, my Shriner community and my school. That was my circle and anybody that that wasn't a part of my circle, you know, forgive me, but they can go to hell, you know, so I don't care what they think of me. It's not my responsibility to. To 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 be better for them or to educate them, it's it's or convince their Convince them to like you yeah.
0: or be nice to people. Yeah. Like they are what they are, and what other people think of you is is none of your business, right? That's what Wayne Dyer used to say. Yeah, there's a quote in your book that says, "I learned early on the folly of viewing yourself based on how others see you." you and go. what a powerful lesson for all of us. Now, sadly, I think you were kind of p- pushed into learning that because you were facing judgment and and you know prejudice all over i mean i'm assuming you walk through the grocery store and people are like what's going on you know and you have to learn how to brush that off but really like we all need to learn that because like you were saying it was the monsters that were calling you a monster that's no coincidence like in my mind that's exactly what's happening all around the world all the time right the people that are like labeling people and like attacking people like the things that they're saying are really like self descriptors so yeah i agree um, and people don't always know that and then and then they can really be wounded be wounded by it so
1: well i think a yeah. lot of people talk too much but i think that's, <laughs> that's all i can say and 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 it reveals a lot about you when you start talking a lot and uh most of the time you're saying nothing you know and yeah. i i i speak when i have to speak and then a lot of times i completely silent you know and i i observe i listen a lot and i pay attention but if I don't have something to say, you know, I'm not going to say anything. And sometimes people take that as indifference or, you know, just being cold or or not taking a side. But I just, I I don't know. I mean, like I, I I don't want to inflame anything. I don't want to add to ignorance and, 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 and the hostility. And it's just something that I had to deal with my entire life. And
0: um, there's a wisdom in that. I don't
1: care what what people think about it, you know it's um it's what I do, and uh you know there you go so uh but your grocery store scenario you know that was a fun thing for me, you know, I did get made fun of a lot but but I immediately found entertainment how to entertain myself, you know, um I would hide around the corner and as soon as these pers- these people came. To make fun of me, or to go look for me, I would scare the hell out of them, and it was great. I used what I had, to an advantage, and it always served in my best interest. And me and my family got a got a lot of laughs out of watching other people run for their lives, you know, cr- crying to their mothers, oh, you know. And it was you were just, a
0: handful. Were you? <laughs> yeah,
1: like, you gotta do what you gotta do. Messing with people. Hey, it is what it is.
0: Well, you strike me as a very determined human being, I think, in in everything that you've done in your life. But what are you most proud of?
1: That's, yeah, that's that's a good one. Uh, What am I most proud of? I'm most proud that I can pretty much endure and just keep enduring. You know, um, I can't always say I win. I can't always say I rise to the top, but I can endure pretty much anything. And, um, yes, I do feel defeated from time to time. I do lose. I do accept loss sometimes. But I never officially quit. Never quit, quit. You know, I've always been able to deal with it and to rise again and try again. You know, um, it's never gotten so bad, no matter what the scenario was, where I just had to just relent and say it's done. You know, I'm, 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 mm-hmm. I, I, I lost, like, for real this time. Never um, give up. It's never it's, it's as long it's as you're Lord. still
0: breathing it's not over right Yeah
1: it's it's I I don't want to say it's more than that but you know it's it's something else like yeah every breath you've got is 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 a, is a breath you've got to be grateful for and and you might not ever get what you want but you know that's that's fine you know that's it, it might not be fine cuz it might not be the result you want to but as long as you kept fighting until the bitter end, you know, you, you, you win, in my opinion. You win. And the world might look at you as a complete loser. But as long as you never give in, you win. You won the championship. That's all I got for you on that.
0: Now, you were really inspired by Rocky. I know you talk about that in the book. and. Right. um your dad actually brought in was it the the soundtrack from the movie when you were in the hospital and like he started like wiggling and getting excited and like starting to move so
1: yeah it was in 1982 so at that time Rocky three had just come out but I don't know if he had Rocky one or Rocky two it was the VHS tape and um, um, they wheeled in a completely sanitized covered plastic covered television with those gigantic you know 1970s VCRs yeah. <laughs> that were the size of a a a, a station wagon and um, he played that tape and and rewound it and played it again around the clock basically and he says in my 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 uh I'm fortunate to know about eight of the the, the, the crew who worked on me um, from the two first responders who arrived first on the scene, um, two administrators, hospital administrators, and two ICU nurses and, and two doctors. So I don't know if that's my math is kind of bad. So maybe that's uh, 10 or eight. I don't <laughs> but um, I know... It, Uh, those folks and um, everybody basically concurs that as soon as that Rocky um, movie was being played and I could hear it because I couldn't see anything because I was my eyelids were badly burned too so I was completely covered in bandages my whole face and body so I could just hear the, the music and and the training sequences and you know, Mickey, uh, Rocky's manager, Burgess Meredith, and him screaming at Rocky, you know. And that really did inspire me. Um, even though I had no idea what it was, um, it, 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 it made me, it made me move. And prior to that, I wasn't moving. I was very sedate. I wasn't breathing on my own. I, I was, um, intubated and, um, on a ventilator, and I fought the tube after that, and they immediately realized that I'm coming back, and uh, they pulled the tube, and I started to breathe on my own, and things changed pretty much immediately.
0: Signs of life
1: from there the Rocky
0: go. 2 movie. There yeah, you, you you describe like you know throwing punches like before you could probably even walk and like, eventually yeah yeah what did what did that movie represent to you what did rocky represent to you
1: exactly what i said prior you know um when you asked what am i most proud of it was you know it's rocky represents endurance resiliency you know um and it's it's amazing that you know here we are um what was his first movie 1976 you know it's 2020 now so i mean that's a long time that that character has developed and the message has been the same the entire time it's just like it's just absolutely taking everything life can throw your way and standing up no matter what and and, and no matter how many times you get beaten down and he gave a wonderful speech in the sixth um, movie um, which is uh, life will beat you to your knees if you let it you know and um, but you got to stand back up and you got to know your worth and fight hard for it for what you want so you know like I said you might not win because Rocky lost a lot right and uh, he actually lost his last fight you know so it's not like you know, it's not like it was all like this Hollywood excess you know where he's a winner no matter what it's not about the win right it doesn't matter the actual trophy doesn't matter you know the, the the real the real victory is in your unwillingness to throw in the towel and that's it so rocky represented that for me and still does
0: very cool so when you were 12 years old segue um you (laughs) that was smooth right you you. um you learned how to play the drums well i think about endurance with that because what it took for you to even like build up the strength to to hold the stick and uh, even just learn if you could do it and and get stronger and better at it but so you come from a family of musicians and what made you decide on the drums
1: well so, I come from a family of brass players, right? Uh-huh. So, um, cause my, my dad's father played, my grandfather, uh, played trumpet. My dad played trumpet. Oldest brother played trumpet. And Scott, the uh, middle, played trombone. And, um, problem with a brass instrument or any wind instrument is, um, you need control of your lips, um, You need lip control. I don't really have upper lip control at all. Um, Tremendous scar tissue on the inside and on the outside of my face has not allowed me to form the embouchure required in order to blow a focused stream of air through a mouthpiece. So unfortunately, I was not able to follow in their footsteps, although I wanted to. I wanted to play trumpet, but I couldn't. So... um, and then I don't have enough digits to play piano. So we had a piano, a really nice, beautiful, ornate piano in our in our house. And uh, I really loved that. I love the timbre of the piano. I love that one person can pretty much do everything on the piano and play like a concert, you know, like a full arrangement on a piano. And I could never do that. So that was a little upsetting. And then stringed instruments, well... You kind of need digits for those too. And we didn't have any of those. And, uh, so it was like, well, what do I naturally do? I mean, I beat on stuff. I was always like finding the rhythm in the music, right? I would ask my dad. I was very inquisitive. Uh, we, I grew up in, we, anybody from my region and down in Southeast Louisiana grows up with parades all the time. Not just for Mardi Gras. I mean, we have our Mardi Gras season, but there are parades throughout the year. Um, and there's always street festivals and um, and and just everywhere you look, there's music all over. Celebration. Um, yeah, so I was always hearing rhythm and drums in a very drums-heavy city, very, very much a rhythm city. And I um, was just wanting to know how these musicians played those rhythms. So my dad, knowing a little bit about rhythm and tried to explain it to me, but my young brain didn't really understand. But naturally, I was inquisitive about rhythm. So one of my dad's best friends was a great drummer, um, played throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s in, in, in New Orleans. And he and my dad and I kind of talked about it and said, yeah, maybe we can work on this and co- come up with a technique, a method to hold the sticks, and we'll get you a drum. You know, so we went to the pawn shop, got a snare drum and sticks, and now it's just a question of how do you hold these things. I mean, you know, like you said, I don't, I, I don't have hands that are recognizable as hands, but I've got some. Residual bone, you know, remaining bone that the shriners were able to, kind of do bone grafting and and lengthen some of the bones and cut through some of the um, the the, um, the space and 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 widened the gap between my thumb metacarpal and the other metacarpal bones, and over years and years and a tremendous amount of effort, work, therapy. I was able to start moving these, these, um, I don't even know what you call them. They're not real thumbs. I mean, they're, they're kind of thumbs, but so I was able to move these, these things and grasp objects. Um, just minimally. I was able to do that stuff. I do a lot of things with both of my hands, you know, where I pick up things with both of my hands just for security and stability. It's, um, even 38 years post my injury it's still hard for me to do single-handed tasks um to a certain degree so um drums drums were were such an appealing thing for me and uh, and again i wanted to be included in my family's musical um exploration that if i could contribute to that by playing Uh, and it looked like fun. I mean, when you look at drummers playing music, that's pretty damn fun, right? I mean, yeah, it does. I've always thought it
0: looked like fun. (laughs) It is.
1: It is. So, but, so we had to come up with a technique. Um, So um, my younger brother was four years old at the time, and he had toys all over the house and just all kinds of stuff. So one day I was sitting on the, on the couch with, with, I guess with my family, I don't remember that particular thing, but I remember the, like that, that, the light bulb kind of moment where, um, the method was placed as though divinely placed in front of my, in front of my, my, my eyes. There was a wristband, like a tennis wrist sweatband. Amidst my brother's pile of toys, which didn't really belong because I don't recall him ever playing with wristbands
0: yeah, Why that's would it's kind of weird?
1: <laughs> so it was just like it was placed there Just somehow it just magically appeared and I had been trying some very Not healthy techniques prior to this and I was really looking for a win and you know duct tape was a failure Oh, um Super glue was a failure. You know, we had this rigid, heavy, rigid bowling glove that was a failure. And rope and all this other failed attempt stuff. And it just was not looking good. And then all of a sudden this wristband appears. And I thought, oh, it's soft. It's elastic. It's comfortable. You know, let me try that.
0: It's not glue. It's not glue. <laughs> it's not
1: going to rip my skin off. Oh, God. So, so um so let's try that. So, now I put the wristband on and put the stick inside, but it was a little too loose. Well, I figured, well, if I can reinforce it on the outside, then maybe that will work. And we took some rubber bands, and we put a couple of rubber bands around the wristband, and I put the stick in, and it felt wonderful. And it was wow. great. Now, the left hand, uh, uh, I had... A, a bit more bone to work with and, and a movable thumb to work with. So there was enough space to grip a stick. Now, I wasn't really strong enough to hold it very well, but I was committed now to catch up to the right side because I found a great method for the right hand and I knew I needed to catch up with the left hand. So I started doing all kinds of physical exercises with the left hand to strengthen the thumb. And over the next, you know, years, really, it took years. Over the next few years, I I developed enough strength um, to where I was very secure in holding the sticks. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, you were very motivated and... um... I think it's so cool that you you kind of found your thing, right? You found a form of self-expression. It sounds like at one point it was also a form of therapy for you. You talked about, you know, if you were having a hard day, you come back and beat on the drums for hours, right? It was an early form of kind of getting stuff out. I think everybody needs something like that. So it's great that you are able to find that. And I think, you know, what people need to understand is that you're not just this guy with no hands who can play the drums. You're an incredible musician that is out there, like, playing with the best of the best in New Orleans. And mm-hmm. I can't do it justice with words. So we're actually <sighs> going to share a clip at the end of this episode of Dan actually on stage with Wayne Dyer playing his drums. So you can just get a little taste um, for for what he can do. But, um, yeah, incredible talent. And you worked on that for years and years.
1: so. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I have you it for it. a journey, that's for sure. You know? Oh. And I've no been doubt. very ble- been very blessed. Uh, unfortunately, there's been no playing during this COVID-19 thing, um, which has been crazy. I haven't played a gig since March 14th. Oh, God. So that's crazy. I'm itching, aching and itching to play on that stage again um, with people, you know. Cause yeah. I mean, I practice every day. I mean, I have two kids set up at my house and... And I'm working on stuff and and, and, and you def- got
0: some YouTube videos yeah it's not the same as getting out there the and performing live right yeah
1: and and you know here in New Orleans um, there's so many opportunities to play you know it's it's just amazing the the um, uh, the the number of musicians and number of opportunities to play music here so um, it was it's it's been a definitely an adjustment for us. You know, mentally to wrap our heads around the uh, this 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 isolation from each other, Um, Mm -hmm. because because music is a very social business, right? And um, yeah, and I play with so many different musicians. You know, it's just we're missing that. And I know we're not alone as musicians. A lot of folks are missing, you know, that 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 sort of social side of life. But but it's 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 been it's been an interesting couple of months for us here for sure i talked to my music buddies and we're all in the same boat and we're all trying to do our best and one day we'll get it back you know it'll it'll be fine
0: hopefully we'll come out on the other side of this and be able to you know connect with each other again in person it affects everybody obviously but performers in particular like how can you do what you do without being able to be around people and you said that you know your lungs were were affected by Um, by the fire Mm. so I'm sure that you are encouraged to stay away from (laughs) from anywhere that you might um, pick up the virus because we don't want your your lungs compromised definitely yeah I've been
1: sort of self-isolating for a long time regardless of any phases of of change here just because I don't want to take any risks you know i mean i am compromised you know naturally it's yeah it's a it's a big deal anyway so anyway no worries it's all good it's just we all deal with it
0: so another thing that i really want to talk to you about today is wayne dyer so um obviously i started the the wayne dyer wisdom community on facebook after wayne dyer died just as a way to kind of keep his messages going and connect with other people who felt about him the way that I do. And, um, it's grown so much in probably just really the last two years. And, um, so I'm excited to talk to to people who knew him or, or who have stories about being impacted by him. But, um, you obviously went on tour with Wayne Dyer at one point, but how did you first discover him?
1: So, um, I was in a group uh, called Toastmasters. It was a uh, kind of a peer support, uh, public speaking kind of training group, if you will. Um, And uh, uh, my father and I were in it together. And he had been telling me about this guy, Wayne Dyer, and bought a book for me, uh, The Power of Intention. And that's remember he was wearing a suit on that cover, right? Yeah, very different than a lot of his other covers, right? So, so I looked at and I didn't know who Wayne was, and um, and uh, I just saw it on his kitchen counter one day, and he says, "You got to read this book." He goes, it's, "He's he's a speaker, so you can kind of use, you know, watch some of his videos, and and you know, I know you're trying to get into um, become a better speaker." And uh, just, I think this might be a good inspiration for you. So I just didn't like, uh, no offense to, 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 to Wayne's people and all that. I That sort of thing didn't appeal to me at the time. I was 24 when that came out, or 25. That didn't appeal to me at that time. Um, so I disregarded it. The very next day... Um, and I was the president of my chapter of Toastmasters at the time. The very next day, we had two visitors, the husband and wife. And um, they came and introduced. I, I I went up to them after and introduced myself to them. And we started talking and they said, man, you look like you got a great story. I, you know, we're curious to learn about you. They had just read Power of Intention. And <laughs> They said, man, we just read this book. I think this will be read right up your alley, and it's called Power of Intention. I said, man, my dad just told me about that book yesterday, you know? So, um,
0: synchronicity. Well,
1: all, <laughs> well, sort of. I do things in threes, right? Okay. I wait for the third one to come. I don't, <laughs> I don't take it if it's one or two. So, um, and I really do make life decisions that way. If I get three, three, dif- like, Three uh, uh, tips or hints or whatever or, or examples of the same thing that I usually act on. So about a week later, I was doing a rehearsal with one of my buddies. And he stayed afterward because we were going to talk over some music and uh, work on some stuff. And he starts talking about Wayne Dyer. And he had just finished reading Real Magic, but he had Power of Intention next in his queue. And he told me, man, you got to read this book, man. He goes, I've heard a lot about it. Real magic is epic. So there it is. Third one, the third example. So I went back to my dad's house and I said, give me that book. <laughs> and I read it. And then I read it again. And I read it again. And I ended up reading it five times in that first month. Wow. And it just blew so my mind. So you liked it. I loved it. <laughs> I thought it was great. And... uh and I just—it was a great, a great introduction to Wayne. I, I, I still think it's his best work. And um, I didn't have any um, concept of of getting to that or writing a book or or telling my story other than to friends and family. But I get that wasn't in my thing. I was a musician. I'm a gigging musician. A drummer. A hired gun. Right. So any given day, I'm on a gig with people I do or don't know playing music I know or don't know. So that's all I knew. Right. That's all I knew. But I said to the universe, I just threw it out randomly. If one day I ever get an opportunity to speak. I want to do it with this guy. (laughs) And I don't know how I'm going to get there. I don't know anything about this. But if it ever happens, I want it to be Wayne, sure enough. My very first public appearance was in Phoenix at one of the You Can Heal Your Life seminars, or I don't remember what it was, Celebrate Your Life seminars. And that was it. And we that was our first one.
0: So the first time that you met him, though, was actually in Tampa, Florida, isn't that right? That's correct. So how did you end up in Florida? Was that through Toastmasters?
1: No. Toastmasters was a very short-lived experience i okay I, I was uh i was just a little nervous on on talking to people on phones and like random occurrences and you know in life and i just wanted to build up my social chops
0: get more comfortable.
1: yeah I get more comfortable Sorry. just in in you know real life interaction like spontaneous stuff so that helped a lot actually um but no, I I ended up in Tampa because Wayne and I had a mutual have have a mutual friend um, named Tiffany, and she and I kind of met by chance um, just before the Tampa experience because she's from the area I'm in. I'm not in New Orleans proper. I'm a little north
0: mm-hmm.
1: of New Orleans, and um, she grew up here. And uh, I had always known about her. I didn't know her Wayne connection. I knew about her, though, um, nice. through other mutual friends locally here. And then one day we just met up at, you know, we just happened to meet uh, at this pizza restaurant out here in Covington. And um, we started talking, and Wayne Dyer popped up in the conversation. And that was it. She had she had been... Um, a good friend of Wayne's um, ever since she had moved out to Maui about 11 years prior or whatever. And, yeah. and that was it. She says, you got to meet him. I told him about you. He'll be in Tampa. Just go. Yeah. He knows about you. Just go. So I, a buddy and uh, uh, and I uh, just decided, hey, man, um, Wayne's doing his Tampa thing. Let's go to Tampa. You want to go? Sure, let's do it. We hopped on a plane. Got there, went straight to the conference center, and within an hour, met Wayne, and there you go. That was uh, just kind of a throw-together.
0: Happened really fast. Last-minute
1: thing, just by chance.
0: There's a quote in your book about meeting Wayne Dyer in Tampa, and um, that he, you were saying here, when it came to say goodbye, he looked me in the eye and said very seriously, listen to me, Dan you have an important story to tell that can inspire thousands and thousands of people. You must tell your story to the world and I'm going to help you do just that. I want you to join me on stage. And that's where you can begin. Mm -hmm. He really believed in you.
1: Yeah, I think so. And, um, he definitely gave me some opportunity to, to, uh, to share some of that with, with people. And, um, he taught me a lot. Um, just by being around him and reading as well. I've read pretty much everything he had ever written um and uh yeah i'm i'm a i'm a wayne Wayne Dyer fan for sure and i'm I'm proud that that I was able to call him a friend too you
0: know and he would tell you he's a fan of yours as well nice. <laughs> What was it like um, going on tour with him or doing these speaking engagements together?
1: Well, Wayne's a big old ce- well, he was, you know, big old celebrity, so it's hard to get him <laughs> isolated from these masses of fans who are yeah. just falling over and worshiping him. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, but okay. <laughs> I mean, well, whatever. I mean, it is what it is. But uh, and 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 he loved it, and 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 um, it was fun. But we did get to have uh, some some time. I went to visit him twice um, out in Maui and spent some time at his place out there. Um, And then we would always kind of get together uh, the day of the event earlier uh, at the hotel wherever we were staying and just kind of talk a little bit and just have some time but he was doing interviews and all sorts of other things too. So I didn't yeah. get a lot of Wayne FaceTime, you know, yeah. by myself with him one on one. But it I didn't take any of it for granted. I mean, when 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 we had time, you know, I was committed to that particular moment and kind of just listening to whatever he was saying. He was always encouraging and and very funny. I mean, Wayne's got a pretty interesting sense of humor. For those who who know Wayne personally, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But um, you know, and he does on stage too. Um, it's a little understated, but Wayne's a Wayne's a funny <laughs> he guy. It
0: up a little bit for the audience.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, he he he's gotten a little um, you know uh, a little out there with the audience. But no, Wayne's funny. He's a, he's a little bit of a prankster. He's he's got his his things, or he had his things, you know, and. Um, yeah, keep you on your toes sometimes it's funny um, I had to consult with some of the uh, the crew some like some of the Hay House crew at times to say is Wayne kidding around or you know because I uh, how serious is he taking this you know and he's committed to his his joking around so I had to consult with folks just to make sure that it was a joke. <laughs>
0: I think maybe he had the dad joke thing going on, you know, with all of his daughters and everything.
1: Maybe. My
0: My dad was a bit of a jokester himself. It was hard to tell if he was being serious. Um, So was Wayne the one who encouraged you to write this book?
1: Yeah, he was. So he was the one who, who encouraged <laughs> me to hurry up and write the book. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I had Come actually on Dan, let's
0: do this well he
1: said we're kind of on a timeline right now, so you kind of do need to hurry up. I had started to write a book I mean I had written about twenty five thousand words um at a snail's pace right and i I didn't know what I was doing um, and I just sort of jotted down some 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 concepts and just elaborated on it it was a glorified outline you know mm-hmm. and um I had no intentions of doing anything with it. But I had mentioned to Wayne that that I had a, a little bit written. And uh, all of a sudden we do the PBS show, Excuses Be Gone. And you know how he does his, fundri- his fundraising um, uh, um, subscription right. giveaways. he sell
0: so, like the whole enchilada. Yeah, right. yeah I
1: well, <laughs> He was really hoping that I would have something done for that. But oh, unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, the turnaround between the taping and the release of the show was so fast that there's I couldn't write the full book in two months. So yeah. I <laughs> unfortunately, I, yeah, but we did write it in like five months, um, which was quick. pretty fast. Uh, so um, he told me, he said, right after the show, I met Louise Hay and and, and Reed, the CEO of Hay House. And... Um, he said, you're probably going to want to meet with uh, with them in a week or two. Um, they're probably going to want you to write a book. You should write a book whether or not they want you to write a book. Just do it. And he goes, we'll yeah. get it published and we'll do what we have to do in order to make it happen. He goes, and I know you've never written anything really before. So we're going to get you a co-writer and it's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Just you're going to be fine. So they paired me with Steve Irwin who is a fantastic writer and an awesome human being. And um, yeah, yeah, we got the book. He also
0: worked with uh, Immaculate Illabagiza on Left to Tell. What was yeah. it like working with him?
1: That was interesting. Um, yeah. We, he, uh he pried into every detail um, and he came down here. He was in New York and he came down to Louisiana for about a week. And we met for like 10 hours a day and just, face-to-face and just just every every detail I could uncover. And then he wanted all sorts of photography and home video footage, and he wanted to interview some of my friends and stuff. And just got every detail uncovered and took that back to New York and asked me to do a couple of rewrites and, you know, collaboration writings. And then when when we did like five drafts, then he sort of... Just took it upon himself and just consolidated them, you know, and yeah. helped me helped me sort of with the um, a thread the uh, the drafts together, which was interesting. I, I was very very satisfied with what he was able to reveal to me in terms of. You know how stories could link to others and the segues yeah. between the stories, and I like how he kind of flip-flops sometimes. And I I write very chronological. I'm very basic. Mm-hmm. It's like start. Okay, I was born in 1979. Then I was <laughs> one. Then I was two. Then I got you know that's not how you write. That's 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 silly. But uh, he gave my story a little bit of form and shape, which was really a good a good thing. So I was I was happy to work with him.
0: It's interesting that you say that because when I read the book and and I knew that you had this co-author and um, your voice comes through so clearly in this story and like it matches up with everything I've seen from you on videos and podcasts and other things right so I feel like that's testament to Steve Irwin that he didn't try to change your voice or, or put it in in his own writing and so I felt like maybe one of his big contributions was just making sure that the story was really complete that like all the details were filled out and, and connected together so it sounds like that is part of what, what he did for this for this book.
1: Yeah, I love Steve, man. He's a great author. And I loved and, and that was another interesting thing. I when I read Immaculate's Left to Tell. Yeah. Um, I, I just like with Wayne, I had no idea how I was because this is before the Wayne thing even happened. I said, if I ever wrote a book, I want to write with Steve Irwin. Oh, really? Yeah. And then sure enough. About six months later I'm working with Steve Irwin we well, got
0: some powerful intentions Dyer. well
1: you know the, the power of intention <laughs> yes sort of helped shape me helped shape me but uh, you know it's you know it is what it is I mean I, I'm just grateful that those opportunities were available to me
0: um, I mean there weren't very many people that Wayne Dyer pulled on stage and said I want to share you with the world you know there was you there was Immaculate ilabagezzi illa Begiza, who Mm -hmm. i actually saw in vegas um when he was there with my sister and there was anita morjani and you know that's pretty much it like he wasn't you know to the extent that he promoted you and wanted to share your story there was very few people who did that so um for me it's particularly exciting as uh, The kind of influence that he had on my life and the fact that you had an influence on me like I'm a big fan of yours um, to get to have this conversation is is really exciting Um, but so he did write the foreword to your book Wayne Dyer and I'd love to read an excerpt from that
1: sure
0: you are about to read a book that will forever change your concept of the word impossible Dan Caro's story will introduce you to a whole new way of looking at the power of the human spirit. Somewhere within the soul of this young man, there exists a kind of magical vision that has allowed him to overcome the most challenging and difficult set of circumstances and emerge as a role model for all of us. This inner vision not only made a survivor out of Dan, but it has given him the ability to live his life at a level that most people, especially those who have never been confronted by such challenges, couldn't even imagine for themselves. I met Dan as I was making preparations for a national PBS special based on my book, Excuses Be Gone. I immediately asked him to come on board with me and provide a first-hand live example of someone overcoming enormous adversity, sans any and all excuse making. Dan rocked the audience and absolutely blew me away, giving a stirring performance of how to be a world-class drummer without the benefit of hands. Dan is one of the most inspirational people I have ever had the privilege of meeting. I love his message, and I love the man even more. His original title for his book was Look Ma, No Hands. That says a lot about the character of my friend Dan Caro, about whom I say, Look, everyone, no excuses. Dr. (laughs) Wayne W. Dyer.
1: Yeah, good stuff.
0: He just loved you, and I know that you know, he was happy to be friends with you and, and have you by his side and that you were willing to come out and share your story. And, you know, I want to thank you for sharing your story with me for spending this time together. You're one of the most inspirational people that I've had a chance to talk to. And I'll never forget it. So thank you.
1: Well, I appreciate you. And it was a pleasure to speak with you tonight here on this podcast. And I wish you the best moving forward with, the, with your future podcasts. and uh, Thank you so much. Thank you for reaching out to me.
0: So, what are you excited about? Is there anything that you're working on now?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, we've got to change the way we function these days, especially, you know, in the uncertainty of what's happening with the COVID crisis. So, um, I've been interested in music production, audio production, video production for a long time. Just with my music schedule, I never really had Time to fully uh, um, explore those options, and I do have a studio, a full-on studio at my house, um, Very and, cool. and I'm working on building up a video studio also. So uh, I've been kind of working on some detailed stuff with that, um, learning some um, some of the uh, the skills and craft associated with the production side. Um, I've been on the performance side for so long. And, you know, obviously, you know, as a musician, production exists around you, but, you know, rarely do you get to see it from that side. But yeah. I was always aware of it and observant of what it was. And it intrigued me because without the the gear and the production and the, the expertise of the engineers who are putting it all together behind the scenes, our job would be just pretty flat, you know um so it, it that has always been appealing to me and because we can't play live now i'm working on some behind the scenes stuff myself and so i've kind of been in a um I, i'm sort of in student mode but also in kind of amateur practitioner side of learning the engineering side of the audio yeah. and doing some of the video stuff too so it's it it's it, it's a lot of busy Uh, busy time and doing a lot of research and stuff so so it keeps me pretty occupied most of the day
0: gives you something fun to think about
1: yeah and you know who knows maybe one day I'll reveal to the world my music compositions that most people have never heard before so um, I have no real excuse not to publish some of that stuff Um, because you know here's my studio I've got the stuff I just need a couple of musicians to help me facilitate that but we'll see what happens Um, regardless music is always yeah hopefully but music is always in the the front in the the foreground so whether I'm playing live or or working on stuff in the backs in the background and I'm always working on music stuff
0: what's the best way for people to reach you and get a hold of your book
1: So, right now, um, basically any of the social networks, uh, you know, you can find me on those, Um, just Dan Caro, or I think Dan underscore Caro, that's D-A-N-C-A-R-O. So, try both of those. And then um, the book is available digitally through Kindle on Amazon and Nook on Barnes & Noble. So, unless you can find a used copy somewhere, um, uh, you you could get it digitally. So try. Them. Well, it's
0: fantastic, and it's definitely worth getting your hands on that. Um, I've got two copies. So I think I'm going to be giving one away. Share that as a gift to somebody. But yeah, really excellent book. Great story. I mean, it's the the beginning is difficult to to read because it talks about the accident and and some great detail actually. Um, But your life story is so inspiring and your voice really comes through. So I really enjoyed reading that. There's also uh, some photos in the middle, um, including one with you and Wayne uh, from 2008, but yeah, some from your childhood and everything. So I was not expecting that. That was a little special treat in the book. Good deal. So I would like to leave our listeners with one final thought from the conclusion of your book, Um, The quote is, the core message I share is this, if we live our lives in the light of love and positive energy, then no matter what happens to us or what challenges we face from day to day or year to year, we can experience life as a precious gift. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for coming on. And um, I look forward to whatever it is that you put out into the world next.
1: I appreciate it, Nadia. Thank you for having me.
0: Stay tuned after the episode for an excerpt of musical talent with Dan rocking the drums on stage with Dr. Wayne Dyer. For all our listeners, thank you for following Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life and telling your friends about it. You can find Dan Caro's book, The Gift of Fire, available now on Amazon. To learn more about this podcast, please visit NadiaDelacruz.com. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Namaste.
1: What do you think? Would you like to hear more from Dan? Your show.
0: Hi, I'm Liz Winter and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Medium Ship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world on my podcast you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network